Well, hi everyone. Uh, welcome. It's great to be with you today as we continue our series on 1 John. My name's Phil and my first question for you is what music takes you back to a certain point in your life? Music kind of says something about our culture, doesn't it, in, in a certain time. So you think about the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. It says something about the culture of the 60s and just thinking about the Oasis song, Whatever, when the first line is, I'm free to be whatever I choose. I mean, that just sums up the 90s. Now, songs, they, they summarise the culture. They tell us something about it. And my three points today are, are from songs. They're the first line of songs or their titles of songs. So we've got what's wrong with the world. We've got what do you mean? And we've got the world is not enough. So just an extra thing you can Google later, you know, see whether you can work out what the artist is or what the year is. But don't do that now. Make sure you're listening. OK, so we're looking at 1 John 2, 15 to 17. And the title for today is the first five words of that, which is do not love the world. John is here in his older years speaking with great wisdom, great experience, not only to the church at the time, but also into our context here and now. Now, John's been talking about loving God and he's been talking about all the, the proofs that we have of loving God. So Steve Chick um, spoke a couple of weeks ago on how loving one another was one of those proofs. And so today, one of those proofs is actually by not loving the world, we show that we love God. So let's dig into it. Verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So as I said, the title of this talk is Do Not Love the World. Wait, did I hear that right? You're telling me, do not love the world. Now, if you're if you're new and maybe this is your first time and, you know, you, you must be thinking that doesn't sound like a very Christian thing to be saying. Maybe you've got a little grasp of Christianity. Maybe you've read a bit of the Bible and you're thinking that doesn't really seem to match up. You know, in there's bits in the Bible which talks actually from John who wrote these verses in his gospel, his eyewitness account of of Jesus's life. He says in chapter three that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He uses exactly the same word, cosmos, for world. And later on, it says that Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. And But you're, you're now telling me not to love the world? And even if you think back to Genesis, well, God actually said to Adam and Eve, like, look after the world. Now, what's going on here? Because as I read it, it doesn't make sense. And and for you, if this is your first time, we're so grateful that you are here. We're so great. We need people like you to, to feed into what we're doing, because actually for some of us, it we just get so used to hearing these words. We don't actually realise that when it says do not love the world, it doesn't really make sense. So here's the first point. What, what's wrong with the world? What we need to look at is where the world is written out by, by John and by other authors in the Bible as well. So in John chapter 8, in his gospel, Jesus says, I am not of this world, even though Jesus was walking around on the earth. In chapter 15, he tells his disciples that they do not belong to the world, even though they were there. 
And in chapter 18, it says, my kingdom is not of this world. Even though there was healings going on, there was miracles going on, his followers were there. It, it seems like there's a distinct difference between the world in the natural sense and the world that is spoken about in these verses. If we look beyond John, we look to James, it says, friendship with the world is hatred towards God. And also for us not to be polluted by the world. And Paul, as he writes in Romans, it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. It's, it's seeming less and less like a physical location and more and more like a set of ideals, a culture, a people and their beliefs. What it means is an outlook which is focused on this world and this life, an outlook which ignores God and lives independent of him. And it would encapsulate the kind of life that all of our friends who don't follow Jesus live, who wouldn't give a thought for God day after day and are instead focused on the here and now on this life. So when Jesus says that he, his disciples and his kingdom are not of this world, he doesn't mean they're not in the world, he means they're not of the world and there's a distinct difference. They can physically be in the culture which promotes a certain set of ideals but they themselves are not defined by it. They were and as Jesus followers we still are called to live in a society, a friendship group, a workplace where all around are living independent of God with an outlook which ignores him and yet we ourselves live dependent on him and our, we focus our attentions on him. Now I was speaking to a friend of mine, Joe, earlier and he was sharing his experience of this in his life. Let's have a listen to what he's got to say. So welcome, Joe. Thanks for joining us today. For those people who don't know, uh, can you just give us an idea about what you do uh, for work, what you spend your weeks doing, and how long you've been doing that for? Yeah, sure. So I work for Land Rover, uh, Jaguar Land Rover in Southampton, um, as a car salesman. Um, but it's something that I've been with them for around about a year now, um, and then in the trade um, for about five years. Okay. So I've been doing it for a little so while. So you're so you're a Christian who's a car salesman. Yeah. And for some people that might be a bit of an interesting combination. So yeah. Could you give us an idea of what what you feel is the perceived culture in the car sales industry, and also if you think that's a fair perception? Yeah. Um, I think the perception that it has is fair. Yeah. Um, yeah okay. and, I, and I think that the perception is one that is um, it's quite a strong one compared to most job titles. It's it's pretty. Um, I think it's a perception of kind of dishonesty and greed and things like that, you know, a lot of money chasing and, and, and whatever. So, uh, which I think, I say it's a fair characterization. It's a strong characterization and arguably a little bit outdated, but there's still a lot of that sort of thing that goes on. Okay. Um, so it's one of those things that can be a little bit counter Christian, if you like, okay. um, naturally. Okay, so, so how do you find living as a Christian in that culture and what might some of the some of the challenges of living in that world be? It's difficult, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and the, the longer I've done it, bizarrely, the harder it's got. Okay. Um, because I think naturally, the more you're surrounded in a certain environment, the um, the harder it is to sort of stay true to yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's something that I've found that the people around me naturally all want to do something a certain way, and that is kind of for self-gain. And there's that's kind of what the job's about. It's a commission-based role. so. Um, for me, I found it quite it, 
kind of imperative for me really to stick my faith in God mm-hmm. and where it's a target driven role and your your value is almost directly put on your performance. Yeah. So for me it's one thing that I've had to learn is to detach my value from my performance of work. And okay. I think the the deeper into the performance aspect I get, yeah. the worse I do, bizarrely. Um, so okay. it comes back to almost trusting God and going, I need to lean on God for the results yeah. and for the provision, not on my own performance. Okay. So uh, in terms of if anyone's watching this and they, they feel like they'd like to pray for you or anything like that, what, what sort of things would you like prayer for in terms of actually like living in that world as a, as a Christian? I suppose it would just be for um, just confidence in God that I can go in and be who I need to be in God. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the main thing because when you're faced with constant, oh, we'll just go and tell them this or just go and do that, it can be a little bit conflicting. Yeah. Um, so I think just confidence in, in God and for me to just keep rooted in and in what I believe is right, I think would be cool. would be really helpful. Thanks, Joe. That was really helpful for us to hear. Jesus actually prayed for his disciples to be sent into the world, not away from the world. And what Joe's described is how this actually works out in his life. He's faced with a daily battle to be more and more like Jesus, to, to put his trust in God, to be reliant on his heavenly father, rather than the what the culture around him is reliant on. Now, it's certainly not an easy calling, but it's one that God is clearly helping him with day by day. So back to John, he tells us to not love this world or anything of this world. He actually goes further and said, this is in direct opposition to love of the Father. It seems like there's no middle ground between loving the world and loving the Father. So this vital thing that we have to ensure that we don't get caught up in, we come back to John, this man with all his years of experience, his wisdom, And we say our next question, our next point, we say, what do you mean? And he tells us and he gives specifics. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life come not from the father, but from the world. So he's being quite blunt here. He's talking about our flesh. So our our natural physical desires, our eyes, what the world makes us see and our own pride and our own self-adulation. Now there's a difference between what is a God-given desire and what becomes lust. We will all have God-given desires that God has given, and there are good things that God has given us to enjoy, whether you watch this as a follower of, of Jesus or not, actually. However, sometimes we use these things to meet our deepest inner needs. We end up abusing them. Let's take, for example, food. Okay, so we will all have a God-given desire, you know, to eat. We all need to eat. Yeah, we all get hungry. We all need to eat. But if you were someone who lived to eat, who maybe couldn't control that desire for food, someone who spends the week thinking about what the next weekend's meal out is going to be like, someone who maybe comfort eats, well, then it becomes a craving for things of this world. And we're using it, we're seeking to meet our deepest need through food rather than the love of the Father. And then there's sex. It's a God-given desire. God's made humans to have sex, but it's so often used outside the plan that he has for it. Look at any newspaper or any social media platform. Talk to anybody, young or old, and you'll know that sex is everywhere. It's become less and less of a big deal to watch porn. 
to have one night stands, to have multiple sexual partners. It's, it's drifted far away from God's original purpose. The gift that God has given us has been abused in all kinds of ways. And in a similar way to food, people can look to it to meet their, their innermost needs. And I guess the problem with both of them is when it becomes your go-to, when you're feeling down, if it becomes your go-to rather than God, well then there's an issue. Martin Luther, who was a theologian from the 1500s, puts it like this. He says, lust means that instead of controlling our desires and using them as we ought to, we are controlled by them. They master us and they control us. There are some things which are God-given desires. But if we get caught up in loving the world, then we are controlled by these desires and they steer us further away from their original intention. So that's lust of the flesh. Now, lust of the eyes is not completely separate from lust of the flesh because the eyes see what the world has to offer. They open a door to something. They're things that if we don't master them, then they'll bring us back again and again to dwell on things, to ponder things. And whether that be food, sex, drink, drugs, power, status, possessions, actually what we look at and what we dwell on will be the things that our heart ends up being entangled by. I can remember being about 19 years old when a church leader called PJ Smythe uh, was speaking to a group of us young guys. But to be honest, it would be absolutely appropriate for girls as well. And he gave some really good advice on us for this. He knew that the challenges that we'd be facing as young men, he knew that the majority of us would be quite visual. And he told us that God has given us something. So whenever you see something which is really unhelpful, whenever there's, you know, the sense that oh, I could dwell on this, I could ponder this, I could look again. Actually, God has given us an inbuilt mechanism for us to fight against it. Do you want to know what it is? It's our eyelids. Sometimes you cannot control the first look. But you can control the second and you can control the third. You can close your eyes. Now, you might feel a bit strange about that. To be honest, if you're doing it when you're walking down the street, you are going to hurt yourself. Okay, but we need to master what we're looking at. So I'll have had times in the cinema where something will have come on the screen which I know is not going to be helpful for me. And I won't just close my eyes. I'll actually look in the top right-hand corner and I'll just keep looking up there until the point where I know actually that has come off the screen. So whatever it, whatever it works for you, shut your eyes, cover them, look away, but don't get sucked into the lie that it doesn't matter. What you look at matters. And the final one that John brings into our thinking is the pride of life. This is all about our ego, our way of speaking about not only ourselves, but also how we speak about other people. We so easily become people who talk highly about ourselves, of what we've achieved, about what our kids have done, about what our friends have achieved, about people that we know, and a whole host of things which essentially uh, don't bring any glory to God, but are all about us and our glory. I mean, just as an example, social media is full of it, right? And so because we live in the world, 
We don't just all ditch social media because, to be honest, it's probably here to stay at this point. But because we're called not to be of the world, we ask ourselves difficult questions. And we say, okay, well, why? Why am I posting this? What, what am I hoping to achieve from posting this? Where's my heart in this? We need to master our pride. Now, I had a real lesson in this around Easter time. When, when I stopped teaching, I took up a role uh, working full-time for the church. And because of the lockdown restrictions, I actually finished my time teaching for the school. I actually finished it working at home. Now, if I'm honest, I was preparing myself very humbly for the moment where there'd be a nice leaving gift, where there'd be a nice leaving assembly, where maybe there'd be a, you know, a nice speech said about me. I was preparing myself for, for students saying to me, Mr. Cranston, how are we going to survive without you? And do you know what? By the time I get back there, it'll be about a year and they will have survived without me. And so it's been a real, it's been a real question of myself. Of, okay, well, what, what was I looking for in that? What was my, what was my desire in that? Where was, my, where was my pride in that? And it comes in a variety of ways pride of life either in bigging ourselves up or in tearing other people down sometimes we can see that someone's better than you at something and and you think well I'll just pick out other faults in this we think that well if if somehow we're two candles alike then by by blowing out this candle this somehow makes my candle shine brighter it doesn't and instead we look at Jesus actually who came into the world fully God but humbled himself, born in a stable, worked as a carpenter from Nazareth, where no good came out of, apparently. He washed his disciples' feet. He made himself nothing. He is our example. He's our servant king. So as John finishes describing these specifics, which are not from the Father, but from the world, he describes how the things from this world and its desires pass away leaving us with the sense, and this is the last point, that the world is not enough. But instead, we are living for something greater, to do the will of the Father, and to live forever. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament in his letter to the Philippian church, puts it like this, as he speaks to the people about where their confidence is in, the, in this world, in their world. If someone thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So he's taking the game that the world in that day played and stating that by those measurements, he would be right at the top of the pile. I wonder what it would look like if, if you were to compile your own list of things that you would be inclined to put your confidence in. Maybe where you live, who you've grown up with, maybe the limit of wrong things that, that you feel that, that you've done, even how long you've been going to church. Well, if, let's see what Paul has to say about all of these things. And carry on. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So Paul has played them at their own game, beaten them, and then showed them that it was the wrong game all along. Actually, all the things we look at and think, hey, I'm, I'm doing well here. Well, Paul would say that we need to consider them rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. The world and all it has to offer is not enough. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have career ambition. It doesn't mean that you don't thank God for your family and your friends. But, but actually, in your heart, all of them know their place in comparison to Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, as you think about don't love the world, you'll find it very difficult to live a life where you're told again and again, well, don't love this, don't love that. No, no, no. Instead, we fix our gaze on Jesus. Love him, delight in him, set your mind on him, seek his kingdom. It's like when children's milk teeth come out. They do so because the new ones are pushing through. So it's less don't love the world, it's more love Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus yet, well, please hear the big message. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to love Jesus more and more. So as we finish today, I want to ask you a question. What does your world look like? It will be different for each one of us, depending on a whole variety of social factors. I invite you to consider how you can live in the world, but not be defined by it, but not be of the world. To be in that space, but not be defined by it. To live around people who live independent of God, but you yourself be dependent on him. And I would encourage you to have a think, challenge yourself on those three specific areas which John was talking about. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Have you mastered those three areas? Where are you looking to, to meet your deepest needs? And above all of these things, the challenge is to look to and love our King Jesus more and more. He who lived in this world, who knows and understands all the struggles of the world, but who was never stained by it himself. He who took on our stain, our wrongdoing, our sin, the Bible calls it, and that we may know our Heavenly Father. And my prayer, my prayer is that we all would know and love Jesus more this week. Amen? Have a great week.